in order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood. From my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood. From my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood. From my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect, O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Good evening again and welcome. Welcome to Brent, we missed you. Hope you had a great time and out in, uh, where were you, Hawaii or Tahiti or something? Illinois. Ah, similar, same sort of thing. There you go. <laughs> so tonight we start delving into this huge tome on the mind, knowing the nature of the mind. And uh, for tonight we go through this interesting summary by His Holiness the Dalai Lama to the text, summary of the text by His Holiness Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama, as well as the preface in which uh, the translator and the uh, contributor do actually list the authors of the text on the bottom of page uh, Roman numeral 13. She doesn't actually name them as the authors, but she says she's delighted to have consulted with them. Ken Tamtok Rinpoche, Tupten Jinpa, Yongting Rinpoche, Gade, sorry, Geshe, Tupten Pelzong, Gelong Tupten Yarpel, and then the editors. So you got the compilers and the editors. And, uh, so let's skip to the introduction, my encounter with science. Some of this was repetitive from volume one. I probably noticed that. Um, so going through the introduction, he uh, makes an effort to establish the, this tradition of Buddhism or this aspect of Buddhism as scientific, going through the scientific method um, he says, my first goal is, is my dialogue with scientists to help make the current field of psychology or mind science more complete. I'm on page four, and then uh, the second goal in, this, in the second paragraph. Uh, behind my dialogue with scientists is how best to ensure that science serves humanity. Once again, we saw this in the first volume as well, of how science is not always uh, uh, seeing itself as taking the role of uh, helping create a better world. But Buddhist mind science very much is focused on that. And um, it goes on for some length about the impact of uh, mental cultivation, ethical implications of that, or foundations of that, rather, 
the mind training aspects of that and the importance overall of uh, healthy healthy minds healthy emotional balance and uh, um, positive mental factors contributing to a positive world and getting into uh, page nine the buddhist presentation on reality or buddhist science so here we dive into the subject matter of the actual book whereas uh, up until this point was sort of general uh, there's one thing that i skipped over that i for that i forgot i wanted to mention on page two on the overlapping paragraph uh, let's see maybe maybe start on page one on the very bottom in buddhism in general and for the nalanda masters of classical india in particular when it comes to examining the nature of reality the evidence of direct perception is accorded greater authority than both reason-based inference and scripture so these are the three possible avenues for uh, uh, direct, valid cognition, direct perception, inference, and scripture. And direct perception is accorded the greatest value. Uh, one's own experience, in other words, one's own experience. For if one takes the scripture to be an authority in describing the nature of reality, such as the Prajnaparamita Sutras or Nagarjuna's fundamental treatise on the Middle Way view, <clears throat> then that scripture too must first be verified as authoritative by relying on another scriptural testimony, which in turn must be verified by another scripture and so on, leading to an infinite regress. Furthermore, a scripture-based approach can offer no proof or rebuttals against alternative standpoints proposed by opponents who do not accept the validity of that scripture. Even among scriptures, some can be accepted as literal, while some cannot, giving us no reliable standpoints on the nature of reality. It is said that to cite scripture as an authority in the context of inquiring into the nature of reality indicates misguided intelligence. <laughs> Even though when you go through the, the major texts, they quote other texts endlessly as being authoritative. To do so precludes us from the ranks of those who uphold reason. But it's interesting that he, he mentions this topic is... Uh, the topic of hermeneutics or interpretation and comes down to um, the fourth uh, sorry the third of the four reliances rely on the definitive meaning rather than the interpretable meaning and it's not always clear what the definitive meaning is and in fact there's sutras that uh, are not totally in agreement with each other as to what the def definitive and interpretable meaning are. In particular, there's one sutra that defines the second turning as definitive and the first turning as interpretable. 
turnings of the wheel of the Dharma of the Buddha. And there's another sutra that says the third turning is definitive. And the first is interpretable. And the second is um, partially interpretable and partially definitive. So it's, it's interesting that he acknowledge, acknowledges that. So going back to page nine, he takes us on a little bit of a whirlwind or a roller coaster or a hula hoop of some kind through the contents of this book. And uh, maybe just before we dive into that, it, it would help to look at the table of contents of the book briefly. So going back to that part of the book, we have part one is the mind, the nature of mind, sense consciousness, conceptual and non-conceptual, and valid and mistaken consciousnesses. So just a sort of general introduction to the nature of mind. And then we have mental factors, distinguishing mind and mental factors, and then going through all the various different mental factors in some detail. Mental factors being uh, consisting of basically two types, functional attributes of mind, such as the ability to pay attention, the ability to remember, uh, the ability to focus. And then, um, what we would call emotional attributes of mind, positive and negative um, virtues and non-virtuous states of mind, positive and negative states of mind. And then gross and subtle minds, the distinction of levels of mind in terms of gross uh, and subtle uh, in, the, in the shared traditions, which means both Sutrayana and Vajrayana. And then finally, the next, or not finally, but the next one is in the highest yoga tantra system, which will be fun. And then we have mind and its objects, how mind engages its objects, uh, which is very uh, key, fundamental, and important explanation of how cognition is presented in the Buddhist philosophical tradition of. Uh, an appearing object, an engaged object, and an apprehended object. So we'll go through that. And then there's this famous sevenfold typology of cognition, sensory and non-sensory, uh, subconscious and conscious, other conscious and self-conscious, and so forth. And then we go into reasoning, inferential reasoning. And that's when things will get rather complicated. Reasoning, rationality, categories, uh, fallacious inferential evidence, and then uh, commentary on a famous, very short text on logic by Dick Naga, the grandfather of the logical tradition in the, the Buddhist tradition, in the Buddhist world. And uh, for now, we'll skip the training the mind through meditation, since you all know how to do that completely backward and forward and up and, and upward and down. I have been through that in many different ways, such as the Bhavana Krama by Kamala Shila. Okay, so back to page nine. 
In brief, the presentation of the nature of reality or science in the classical Buddhist text can be summarized in the following four major topics. The nature of the physical world, which is volume one. The presentation of the mind, the cognizing subject. So the first one was presented as the object of our cognition. The second topic is the subject, and that's this volume and course. Third, how the mind engages its object, which will also be included in this course and this volume. And then the science of logical reasoning by means of which the mind understands its object fully, again included in this book and course. The first topic, nature of the physical world, as well as the pre presentation of the philosophical outlook and methods of inquiry underlying Buddhist science were covered in volume one of this series. So in this introduction, I'll focus on the remaining three topics, which are covered in the present volume. The mind as the cognizing subject in general. Science refers to a bodily of knowledge about the world obtained through a method that is verifiable by anyone who repeats the same experiment. This is where what I was the section I was talking about of him trying to establish the, that Buddhism uses the scientific method. Um, so science refers to a body of knowledge about the world obtained through a method that is verifiable by anyone who repeats the same experiment. The term can thus refer both to the body of knowledge acquired and to the method used to acquire it. In other words, science can refer to a specific systematic method of inquiry. For example, when a scientist investigates a particular question, they first develop a hypothesis through experiments, certain results are revealed, and these findings are then subjected to confirmation by a second or third party, such as one's colleagues. When the findings of different scientists converge, these findings come to be accepted as part of the canon of scientific knowledge. Boom. Big, huge canon. Um, The way such discoveries are made is characterized as the scientific method. This feature of scientific method seems to accord with two of the three criteria of existence proposed in the Buddhist Madhyamaka text. That is, one, it is known by a valid cognition, and that it is, two, not contravened by some other conventional valid cognition. So it's perceivable by everyone. Divisions of the nature of cognition or the science of mind and Buddhist sources define what is cognition. Categorize the types of mind and explore those in detail. When cognitions are differentiated, we find such twofold classifications as that into sensory and mental, which is the first chapter of cognition, which is made on the basis of whether a cognition is dependent upon a sense physical sense faculty or not. There's also the twofold classification of valid versus non-valid cognition based on whether a given cognition is veridical, which I believe is a fancy word for true. Is that true? It's a cool word though. Um, 
Its distinction is drawn also between conceptual and non-conceptual processes. And notice that these are separate, so uh, valid and invalid cognition are not necessarily synonymous with conceptual and non-conceptual, because there can be a conceptual invalid cognition. Uh, sorry, there can be a non-conceptual invalid cognition. <laughs> Christopher Square is doing some weird shit. <laughs> Did you guys see that? Mary Beth's. <laughs> I don't know what you're doing, Chris. Some hocus pocus. But that was neat. Um, so that's important to know that, that those are, are two ways of slicing the world of cognition that are not exactly synonymous or the same. So what is valid does not in, in the way they're using their ter terminology does not necessarily mean non-conceptual. And conceptual does not mean invalid. There's um, conceptual inferential cognition is valid. Valid uh, inferential cognition is conceptual. And there's um, non-conceptual cognition that's invalid or, mis or mistaken because of uh, sometimes our senses are mistaken due to their limits or the uh, play of phenomena, as you might say. Distinction is drawn between conceptual and non-conceptual based on whether a cognition engages with its object through applying a conceptual category, such as this is so-and-so, which is known as a generally characterized phenomena or um, idea or generalization, and on whether a universal image is involved in the cognitions. Uh, distinction is also drawn between the mind, which is primary, and its concomitant mental factors on the basis of whether it cognizes its object as a whole, which is the definition of a primary mind, of which there are six, one for each of the five physical senses and one for the mental sense. So primary, the definition of primary mind is... Um, is that which cognizes its object as a whole. And mental factors are that which uh, apprehends specific attributes of an object. A differentiation is made between mistaken and non-mistaken cognition based on whether the object of that awareness exists in the way it appears to that cognition. Again, different from valid and invalid in a subtle way. Um, also, in terms of its object, a distinction is made between reflexive awareness and objective awareness. Reflexive awareness being the awareness of awareness. Finally, based on the ways they engage their objects, there is the sevenfold taxonomy of cognition. Distorted cognition, doubt, correct assumption, indeterminate perception, direct perception, inferential understanding, and subsequent cognition. And these are a little bit similar to the uh, scheme of cognitions that I showed yes, uh, last week, rather, in a chart that are a progression 
here. But given the way that they've translated these terms, I'm not exactly sure if they present a, a complete progression here from sort of wrong knowing to correct valid cognition. The Buddhist sources on mind science also explore in great detail such topics as the nature of the mental factors and their divisions, their specific functions, the process by which they arise, and their inner relations. So how do, how do mental factors relate to each other in that uh, mental factors tend or always arise not in a vacuum but with other mental factors and they uh, group themselves both functionally and sort of um, in terms of virtuous and non-virtuous. So uh, anger and love don't arise in the same cognitive moment things like that. Whereas something like anger and resentment can more easily arise together. They also explore the nature of ignorance and the question of how ignorance, that is a distorted cognition, gives rise to inappropriate attention, which in turn gives rise to afflictions like attachment and aversion, and how attachment and aversion give rise to other destructive emotions like pride, jealousy, and so on, which disturb one's mental equilibrium. They address how attachment gives rise to mental excitation and distraction to external similarity and how mental laxity leads to the loss of alert awareness of the chosen object, as often happens in meditation. We also deal with the question of how mental dullness arises, which makes the mind unserviceable. Um, and uh, this should not be understood in, in, uh, in the way of that your, your mind cannot be served, but that the mind does not serve you well, unserviceable, and brings unclarity to the mind, as if darkness has come to settle. They also present the way to cultivate these counter-agents, such as wisdom that helps differentiate the specific characteristics of phenomena, love, empathy, forbearance, confidence, mindfulness, and mental awareness. Being a list of positive mental factors that counter, that counter those negative mental states. In short, these texts present the techniques for enhancing qualities such as those cited and also for cultivating concentration that is characterized by single-pointedness of mind, which enhances one's capacity to sustain single-pointed attention for prolonged periods. Now, usually we, we sort of meditate from the point of view of um, just going, going in and trying to be present and focus our minds on an object and come back over and over again and uh, what he what uh, this system is getting at is that actually cultivating various mental states such as loving kindness patience um, um, act as uh, very powerful contributory forces for concentration which is why they're cultivated. So the four, found, the four immeasurables are actually the preliminaries for meditation practice. And they're not some auxiliary practice that are done for the sake of uh, giving rise to bodhicitta in the early tradition. The four immeasurables are done 
both to create a better world by having uh, it be filled with people who are uh, positively minded, as well as be the support for entering into concentrative meditation. Question. Uh, yes, ma'am. I wondered, the last item in that list of phenomenal love, empathy, etc., was meta-awareness. And I wondered, do you have any idea what the, um, what term perhaps in Tibetan or Sanskrit or whatever that you Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, what do you, do you have any guess, given that it comes right after mindfulness? Well, I mean, on one hand, it could be Vipassana quality of awareness, like, you know, Trungpa talked about that panoramic awareness quality or whatever. Um, it, I don't think he's going to, I don't know whether he's going to the level of like Rigpa and that sort of thing. Um, Any other guesses? It could just be, yeah, what is it, Trungpa and that kind of thing. Uh, that yeah. what do presently you think? knowing quality. Anyone else? So, believe it or not, there's a special tool at the back of the book. It's not a hammer, it's not a screwdriver, it's not a forklift, and it's not a computer, but it's a glossary. <laughs> and so on page exactly 500 of the book, on the very bottom, we have meta-awareness, and it's in parentheses, then we have Shebzblin, <laughs> which is pronounced Shechen. Okay, it is Shechen. Okay, my last guess. Yeah. So also introspection is an alternate translation. So that's an interesting translation for this term that we haven't seen before. Meta awareness with one T, not two. If it was two Ts, then it would be what loving kindness awareness. <laughs> Uh, Meta-awareness is the mental factor that monitors one's conduct of body, speech, and mind from moment to moment in meditation practice. It's used in tandem with mindfulness. So it's interesting that they coined a, a new term with that little meta add-on. Yeah, I, I would I would venture that this came from John Dunn, because I think... Oh, he, right. Huh. That, yeah. That's his style. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Thank you. But yeah, thank you for uh, for asking about that. I, I didn't uh, pick up on that. Thanks. So in brief, so the next uh, paragraph. In brief, these Buddhist sources um, identify over a hundred distinct mental factors. I was a little confused by the hundred, but we'll see what they come up with, because usually there's 51 and explain how certain types of mental factors act as antidotes to others, and how this law of contradiction within the mental world facilitates the possibility of eliminating certain types of afflictions through enhancing the power of their counter-agents, which is a convoluted way of saying that um, uh, you can actually reduce negative emotions by reducing uh, mental factors that are affiliated with or act as supports of negative emotions, as opposed to going right against the anger. So uh, a, a negative emotion that maybe supports anger, as I mentioned earlier, is maybe resentment. So if you're able to reduce resentment, 
then your anger would uh, sub would be reduced. Things like that. So they they uh, we don't really see it in the common presentations of Abhidharma, but the more uh, traditional, at least from the early tradition or the so-called Hinayana, Theravada, Nikaya tradition. There, one huge part of Abhidharma texts is this thing called conditional relations, where they have this amazingly bizarre charts of showing how every moment of consciousness has some number of mental factors. That's like, I think there's like a minimum of, I don't know, 40 or 50 or something, up to, I don't know, like 100 or something. And, um, they, they go through in detail which ones can occur with which other ones and which ones can't occur with which ones. And then which ones are sort of major and which are minor and what are the, what are the minor ones that arise with the major ones and so forth. <laughs> so I, someday, someday I gotta like, I gotta show you a chart at least just cause it's so sort of bizarre. Matrix of conditional. Okay. Let's see. In a sense, that would be in, it would be in some ways what makes Abhidharma more useful. I think it's it's not just listing what's there, but how they act. It is, it is, and in, in the, the sort of traditional Abhidharma text, it's like the whole crux of the whole thing, and it's the the sort of culmination of the process of learning all the different skandhas and ayatanas and mental factors. It's like bringing them together. It's like how how to. It's the how to portion, and uh, it's odd that it gets often in later versions of Abhidharma. It, it doesn't really come through. It, uh, it either is dropped entirely or is is presented in some other way in a in a, in a uh, much less potent way, and uh, it's it's just that the I think the early versions are so methodical and laborious that uh, the leap to uh, make them into a workable system was too far. But let's see what they do in this text. It, it looks, from the sounds of this, it seems like maybe they're going to try to do that. And when you look at the seven uh, core Abhidharma texts of the early tradition, the last one is conditional relations, and it's uh, the largest one. So can we call this a compendium of compendiums? Yes, that's right. Okay. That's exactly right. Yeah, we'll see it uh, soon. Actually, there's a whole list of other compendiums, and the Buddhist tradition is famous. Actually, not famous, but is uh, very adept at creating compendiums and then compendiums of compendiums. <laughs> and this is the latest in the in the evolution of compendiums of compendiums. Uh, let's see. Uh, counter agents. Thus, the science of mind found in the Buddhist sources is something meaningful with the potential to benefit the more than seven billion human beings on this planet Earth. 
the Buddhist sources also present various levels of subtlety of consciousness. For example, consciousness during the waking state is considered grosser. <laughs> Con uh, consciousness in dream state is comparatively subtler. So this is not about the content of the consciousness, you understand. Because the content of your dreams could be gross. Um, and uh, compared to that consciousness during deep sleep is subtler still. There's also the differentiation of consciousness into the threefold category of gross, subtle, and very subtle. Within this, the first encompasses the five sense perceptions. So that's the grossest level of consciousness, sense perceptions. The second includes the six root afflictions, as well as the 80 indicative conceptions. Now, I don't see that, I don't see in this book yet that they're going to go through this topic called the 80 indicative conceptions, but that's a, a list you find when you, you go into the Vajrayana version of the dissolution of a sentient being or a human being upon the activity called death. First, there's the physical dissolution and then there's the mental dissolution and the mental dissolution is described as being the dissolution of the 80 indicative conceptions which are a collection of some uh, like 40 negative ones 30 positive ones and 10 indeterminate ones or something like that well the third very subtle of consciousness includes the minds of the four empty states, <laughs> which I believe, uh, which I think they'll go through in that chapter of uh, the subtle, gross and subtle minds in the highest yoga tantra, and is, is uh, refers to the system of uh, mind in the tantric system of the Galupa world, where they have this thing called the four empties. And they saw a reference to the four empties in the last course in one class. Um, and it's this obscure, very advanced system of uh, what the ultimate nature of mind is. So that's something exciting to look forward to. <laughs> At least I am. Even among the minds of the four empty states, differentiations of subtlety can still be drawn. For example, compared to the innate mind of clear light, which is the most subtle, or the fourth of the four empties, the three minds of luminosity are grosser, while the innate mind of clear light is understood to be the most subtle level of consciousness. This innate mind is characterized as energy wind from the point of view of its movement toward an object and as consciousness from the point of view of awareness. So it has those two aspects of energy wind, point of view of its movement toward an object, and as consciousness from the point of view of its awareness, which presumably have some relationship to the two qualities of mind of being clear or lucid or knowing, and uh, or sorry, clear or reflective and knowing. An important set of topics within the Buddhist science of mind include how, given the adventitious, given that the adventitious things do not reside in the mind's essential nature, the essential nature of mind is that of clear light. How the continuum of this luminous and knowing reality is stable, since it has no beginning, and how the qualities of the mind have the potential for limitless enhancement. For once perfected, they do not require exertion of new efforts. 
these above points are so critical that anyone who lacks deeper knowledge of them will only have a partial understanding of the great Buddhist treatises. In other words, this is an important topic. <laughs> and uh, it's uh, also a very interesting one and uh, potentially controversial because it sounds like there's some sort of continuous permanent mind. Doesn't it sound that way? Like there's something ongoing there. So well, it's interesting what, how they explain it. What, what's also seems odd is that it both says that there's a potential for limitless enhancement and without regretting yeah without regressing and and then on the other hand it also says for once perfected they do not require exertion of new efforts it seemed to almost contradict also in the sense of there's yeah. something to do and there's nothing to do yeah well it's a little bit of vajrayana view there yeah. it's the sort of the galupa version of uh, you know dzogchen great completion view so tell you you have like a recording of a siren that you play whenever you speak, right? No, that's a real one. Sorry. <laughs> Just to make it sound like you're like in some very. Just to prove I live in New York. <laughs> Similarly, there are ideas and insights in Buddhist epistemological treatises such as those of Dignaga and Dharmakirti that can enrich contemporary cognitive science. These include, among others, the presentations on the, on the nature of sensory cognitions, the logical reasoning, establish how sensory cognitions are devoid of conceptualization, how thoughts... So, you know, we, we have this way of categorizing conceptual and non-conceptual cognition. And we say sensual sense cognitions are non-conceptual, but we never, like, go through proving that, so... It'd be interesting to see how they prove that. How thoughts engage actual reality via the medium of universals. In other words, indirectly. The characteristics of universals. How general terms, uh, mainly they're universal. How general terms and cognition of universals apply to the plurality of pure particulars and the various arguments put forth to demonstrate the unreality general characteristics even though they're universal how the mind engages its objects so we get a little more difficult terrain I just wanted Sorry. to add one more thing i went to the footnote related to that mm. last item and it referred to dharma kirti um yeah good yeah in particular as opposed to dignaga yeah just Uh, based on how a given object appears to the mind, a distinction is drawn between negatively characterized phenomena and positive phenomena. And negative and positive is not a sort of, uh, it's not an ethical distinction. Um, it's a sort of cognitive distinction. Similarly, based on whether the given cognition engages, engages its object due to the object casting its form to it, there's the distinction between cognitions that engage by way of exclusion and those that engage by way of affirmation. So, um, negatively characterized phenomena are those uh, that are the object of conceptual cognition, where we negate everything that is not the object that we're trying to think about or talk about. 
and positive phenomena present their aspects to us positively. Uh, whereas concepts negate everything else that's not it. And another way of describing that is uh, that cognitive, uh, conceptual cognitions operate by way of exclusion, excluding everything that's not what we're trying to think about. And uh, actual specifically characterized phenomena appear by way of inclusion. They, um, or affirmation is a better term than inclusion. Affirming, they present uh, a positive affirming presence of their attributes. This is also the distinction between identity and difference based on how thoughts conceive these objects because when the object universal of a thing appears to a thought, it does so either as singular or plural, which is a sort of convoluted way of talking about um, conceptual isolates if you remember that one. Similarly, what is essentially a single entity can be understood to possess conceptually distinct attributes. This is a further explanation of this idea of isolates, that single phenomena can have uh, different characterizations uh, if we come at them from different angles, such as the way we saw that uh, different terms in the Dudra or collected topic system were synonymous. Object, object of, of knowledge, phenomena, thing were uh, synonymous. And so there were different conceptual isolates. And uh, here we have um, Similarly, what is essentially a single entity can be understood to possess conceptually distinct attributes with one serving as the basis for inferring the other, for instance, being a product or being uh, something that is produced can help infer something to uh, something as being imper impermanent. Although that which is a product and that which is impermanent are one and the same entity. So it's one entity, but there's different characteristics of that entity that can be conceptually conceived. Also, when a single cognition takes something as an object, one can distinguish two aspects of such cognition, the way it appears and the way it's apprehended. And uh, so this is the gets to the process of cognition where um, uh, in, in the world where we believe that there's an external object, an external object somehow casts its uh, energy towards us, either as light or waves or sound waves or particles of uh, odor or some such towards the sense organ. And then the sense organ creates an, an appearing object, an appearance of that phenomena in its in its uh, in the sense consciousness or the sense faculty and then the sense consciousness apprehends that appearance and it's extremely helpful to be able to separate those three entities so we'll go through this at some length but there's the so-called outer object let's say for the color blue, a visual object of the color blue. And then there's 
the appearance of blue in your visual sense faculty or a blue flower in your sense faculty. And then there's the apprehension of that in your uh, visual consciousness. It registers a blue uh, flower-shaped object. And that those are separated as three different entities, three different aspects of cognition in order to bring out uh, the way that conceptual cognition um, works as different from direct non-conceptual cognition. Eric? Yes, ma'am. When you said that it casts something out, <clears throat> that confused me. Like you were giving some, some power to the object to draw us to it somehow. Yeah, so I was trying to describe the process of like light reflecting off of a surface into our eye. Okay. okay. So you have the external object, which in this, in this, you know, we're taking as the basis the Sautrantika tradition that holds there to be real existing from their own side objects, such as blue flowers. And uh, when there's light present from a sun or a lamp, it reflects off the blue flower, and those light waves go into our retina, sorry, into our um, pupil, <laughs> and uh, hit our retina and excite the nerves there. And in the optical system, the visual system, there's uh, a replication of that external phenomena in some way. And then that's transferred into the visual cortex in the back of the head, you know, to, to try to like weave together Western neuro, neurological science, neuroscience with the Buddhist system. And then in the, in the visual cortex in the back, there's an image of a blue flower, so to speak. And that those are three separate things and there can be uh, factors affecting each one of those, such as, let's say uh, you're colorblind and the, the cells in your eye don't function correctly. So the, uh, the image in your eye is not going to be correct. Or let's say your visual cortex is damaged, and so the image there is not going to be correct. Or let's say the light, it was, let's say it was a, what is, what is it, a black light or something, some sort of dark light that uh, made the blue thing appear I don't know, pink or purple. Anyway, so uh, we'll go through that and its significance. They describe it here as um, also when a single cognition takes something as an object, one can distinguish two aspects of such cognition, the way it appears and the way it's apprehended. So a distinction can be drawn between the mind's appearing object and, and its object as cognized. The latter is known as the engaged object, for when the person engages with that object just as apprehended by that cognition, that person is not deceived. We're engaging with the way it appeared in our cognitive, in our, our visual system. 
Similarly, a thing can be characterized as the object or focus of a given cognition because it serves as the basis for the mind to eliminate false conceptualization. So this is a very terse and, in my opinion, very um, unclear explanation of the significance of this system. So let's see how they do later on, and if necessary, we can supplement it with other explanations, because it's a, quite an important little scheme. Um, These, is this, sorry. Is this the snake and the rope thing? It relates to the snake and the rope, yeah. Yeah, so uh, there's a, a rope in the grass, and it's dark, and it sheds uh, light into your eye, which... Uh, appears as a rope to your eye, but your mind thinks it's a snake. But your eye actually saw correctly a rope. Your eye doesn't see the snake. Your mind, your cog, uh, your associative part of your mind thinks it's a snake. You know, even even if it's a even if it's a, a hose that is camouflaged to look like a snake, your eye will pick up correctly, unless it's damaged, correctly the colors and the shape that it that is out there. And then it's a matter of interpretation what happens from there, given one's predispositions to fear snakes and so forth. Um those Buddhist, these Buddha sources rather also contain debates on whether sensory cognitions perceived perceive their objects by assuming an image of the object being perceived. Those who advocate this notion of the ob, of the object image state that when sensory cognitions perceive their objects, they do so by having a likeness of the object appear to the mind. So this is uh, the Sautrantika system where there's uh, the image or the aspect that appears in the visual consciousness. If this is not the case, they argue, one will not be able to account, account for the diversity of perceptions that one can experience in relation to even a single object. Those who reject the notion of images argue that if sensory cognitions perceived via the medium of such images, this would mean that they do not directly perceive those their objects and furthermore there is no evidence for the existence of external objects that are not perceptible by the senses that's an interesting point <laughs> and uh, that sounds like the chitamacha school folks at the end there and then we have the difficult subject of logical reasoning so he gives uh in my opinion, a highly advanced overview of this in a very concise way. So uh, we'll just sort of go through it briefly and uh, and as a sort of uh, entree or initial uh, opener to the topic, which we'll go through much more deeply later on. The science of reasoning represents the means by which the mind engages its object. And it is a key that helps open the doors to the secrets of reality that remain hidden from our senses. That was a pretty good marketing line, I thought. <laughs> that makes it sound really interesting, doesn't it? <laughs> it's like, wow, 
I want to know what the hell he's talking about. And then I glazed over and couldn't figure out what <laughs> right. he was saying. The rest of it was like, <laughs> that's funny. The science of logical reasoning is therefore extremely important. The basis for the application of logical reasoning lies in the four principles of reason, reason which we discussed in volume one, pages 10 to 12. Anybody look that up? I, I think that was uh, nature function. Um, Nature function, relationship, and logical syllogism, something like that. The important topics in the Buddhist sources on logical reasoning include the characteristics necessary for valid proof, the logical relationship between the evidence being presented in the courtroom and the thesis being proven, and so on. Although in general, one can infer the presence of something related on the basis of its relationship to something else. Not all specific characteristics of that related thing can be inferred. Only the ones that are uh, in, implied by the evidence can be inferred. For example, one can infer a cause from the presence of its effect. So that's uh, one of the principles of reasoning is uh, dependence. And similarly, one can draw inference based on a shared essential nature. That's the second of the four is the nature. However, not all features of the cause or the thing can be inferred through such types of reasoning. Also, based on the logical relationship that exists between the evidence and the thesis within a given syllogism, uh, correct evidence is classified into three categories. Effect evidence, i.e. cause and effect. Nature evidence, a shared nature such as uh, heat or cold, things like that. And evidence consisting in non-perception, absence. Within the category of effect evidence, depending on how the syllogism is presented in line with the intention of the person to whom it is directed, Five types of effect evidence are distinguished in Buddhist sources. So we'll see those later. As for nature evidence, uh, meaning the nature of a phenomena or characteristic of a phenomena, differentiation is made into two types based on whether the term that states the evidence indicates an activity of a person. Um, I think he, he means or not. Within the class of evidence consisting in non-perception also, two types are identified based on whether the non-perception takes the form of the non-perception of a fact that is logically related to what is being negated. This is where it gets complicated. <laughs> or whether the non-perception is being proven on the basis of the perception of an incompatible fact. So he's going to describe these slightly. In general, in the case of something that exists but lies beyond our perception, so he's describing the first part, with, going back a sense within the class of evidence consisting in non-perception. Uh, 
Two types are identified based on one, whether the non-perception takes the form of the non-perception of a fact that is logically related to being to what is being negated. And then he says, in general, in the case of something that exists but lies beyond our perception, mere non-perception cannot prove its non-existence. So if we're talking about uh, like um, the quality of the air over a certain city, but we can't perceive that, then it lies beyond our perception. Or if we're talking about what your neighbor is doing in their house, you can't perceive that. Um, Nonetheless, even here one can demonstrate the inappropriateness of a claim on the basis of, of the absence of its knowledge. So just because you don't see something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Right? Just because you haven't experienced something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. In, in contexts where a fact under discussion is something that would be perceivable were it present, here non-perception can lead to correct knowledge of its non-existence. And the famous example is the elephant in the room. Is If there were an elephant in the room, you would know it. There's no way that an elephant could be hiding under the bed or in the closet, and therefore in the room without you knowing it, right? So those are two very different ways of non-observation. One is not being able to observe something that if it were present, you would definitely observe. And the other is not being able to observe something that you wouldn't be able to observe even if it were there, such as a ghost. You can't see ghosts. If you, if you say that there are, if you uh, accept that there are ghosts, the fact that you don't see them is not a valid proof for their non-existence because ghosts are defined as being imperceptible to regular sentient beings generally. Uh, let's see. Thus, there are two general classes of evidence consisting in non-perception. Within the second category of evidence consisting in non-perceptions, we have a breaking down this one, uh, where we're we're not able to see something that, if it were there, we would see it, or hear it, or feel it, etc. With this second category of evidence consisting in non-perception, namely where what is being negated is in general perceivable, there is the non-perception of something related whose presence is necessarily dependent upon the presence of its correlates, such as like smoke and fire. An example of this type of reasoning is whether the absence of fire on which the existence of smoke depends is used as a basis to infer the absence of smoke. Within this type of reasoning, through the non-perception of something related, the related thing might be its cause, its universal, or its essential nature. So if there's no smoke, then there's no fire. You can assume there's no fire. Where you can determine. Within this type of reasoning, through the non-perception of something related, the related thing might be its cause, its universal or essential nature. Uh, so the, these are the, uh, the 
possible relationships. Has a causal relationship. Um, I'm a little confused. He throws in its universal. Oh, it, it's universal or essential nature. So there's those two options. There's a causal relationship, such as smoke and fire, or a nature relationship, such as uh, you don't have snowflakes where there's a fire because the nature of fire is very hot and snowflakes only exist where there's a temperature under a certain level that's way different than fire. Uh, thus, there are three kinds. So he lists these as three kinds. Huh? I'm confused. So we'll have to delve We'll delve into that later. In the case of evidence consisting of non-perception based on the perception of something contradictory, there is the one where the evidence is affected by the perception of something contradictory in the sense of being contrary. <laughs> Just sort of saying the same thing. And it relates to the smoke and, and snowflakes. There's also a second type where the evidence is affected by the perception of something contradictory in the sense of being mutually exclusive without any possible alternative, as in the law of excluded middle. Morgan, do you have to happen to have uh, handy a description of what the law of the excluded middle is and why we've excluded? It just, it just means a binary choice. It means if, if, it's, if it's hot, then it's not cold. But, and, and if it's cold, it's not hot. But there's nothing in between. In, in this example, there's nothing in between. Yeah, it can only Actually, be one or the other. Yeah, because there is a range of temperature in between those, but there are many situations where it's one or the other. It's like the light is on or it's off. Right, sort of that's a better example. Uh, let's see, the Buddhist reasoning of dependent cognition, sorry, <laughs> dependent origination used to negate self-existence. Oh, sorry. The Buddhist reasoning of dependent origination used to negate self-existence, for example, belongs to the second type of reasoning, the contradictory, um, it's contradictory in the sense of being mutually exclusive, i.e. either the self is related to the aggregates or the self is independent to the, of the aggregates. You can't say that the self is related to the aggregates and completely independent of them. That's a contradiction. That's a no-no, <laughs> to use a technical term. Within the first kind, the perception of something contradictory in the sense of being contrary. Again, there are three kinds. <laughs> I can't believe he goes into this level of detail in this introduction, but that of essential nature, but it is the same scheme each time. Nature, that of effect, and that of pervading universal. Um, so again, this universal, that's unfamiliar to me, but anyway, within each of these three, one can further distinguish among the opposing fact itself, its effect, and its pervading universal. Thus, 12 distinct forms of reasoning can be differentiated in fact, there can be many different ways in which this type of reasoning can be further distinguished. So for your homework tonight, 
is to map out those 12 in like a chart format and come up with another six. Further, there's the reasoning in the form of a consequence that reveals a contradiction within the opponent's position. So um, the, the other description up until now of reasoning was all based on evidence. It's all based on like um, some proposition or syllogism or, or situation. And now we're shifting to another type of uh, logical reasoning that's based on making enemies <laughs> by poking holes in your friend's arguments or, or their, in their worldview. Although this type of consequence revealing reasoning on the whole, I like the consequence revealing reasoning <laughs> on the whole negates viewpoints primarily through demonstrating a logical contradiction within the opponent's position. There are some that also implicitly, implicitly rather present correct logical syllogisms to establish a given thesis as sort of a starting point. You know, well, if you assume that if you, you know, if it's a given that this, then you can't say that about it. Those that do not imply such a correct syllogism negate their opponent's viewpoint by leveling objections. So he's talking about two ways of uh, going about presenting the nature of reality of a situation, either conventional or ultimate. In one situation, you, uh, uh, use a forward a positive statement about the way things are to uh, uh, relate to your so-called opponent or friend and in the other way you merely undo whatever your opponent says does this ring any bells what what are, uh, does this have a uh, relationship in the world of buddhism that you might be familiar with that last thing sounded a bit Madhyamakan. Yeah, so these are the two types of Madhyamakans or Madhyamikans. And, uh, oh, sorry, Prasangikas. Yeah. yeah, so the last type is the Prasangikas, those that simply negate their opponent's viewpoint by leveling objections endlessly. Total pain in the butt type of people. And the other is people who will actually put forward some positive statement and say something, contribute to a conversation instead of just picking apart. And those are the Swatantrikas. So who would you like to spend your vacation with? <laughs> Probably a Swatantrika. I guess it depends on whether you want to spend your vacation talking. <laughs> at if, all yeah if, if not if you want to spend your vacation snorkeling better to have the prasangakas right yeah because it's over <laughs> that's right okay let's go snorkeling <laughs> that's a good point and then there's the non-perception of arguing in brief the science of logical reasoning offers a multiplicity of avenues to critically analyze reality through these diverse avenues insight into something useless called the ultimate nature of reality that can be discerned. When one engages with uh, reality repeatedly through 
these avenues of inquiry, the cognitive power of one's mind will come to be enhanced, leading to the development of a balanced view when it comes to understanding the ultimate nature of reality. Good closing uh, cash to the sale. But his philosophy represents the summation of the conclusions about the nature of reality developed through critical inquiry. In science and philosophy in the Buddhist, in the Indian Buddhist classics, philosophy will be treated in the next two volumes, but I will touch on it briefly here. In Buddhism works explicitly presenting philosophical views evolved early in the day, like before nine. We are thus with the, uh, we see this with the appearance of the questions of King Menander before the common era, this Greek king that had uh, a debate with a, a famous monk named Nagasena that's uh, recorded in a two volume translation. It's a cool text. Uh, the Abhidharma treatises starting around the first century of the common era, the six philosophical treatises of Nagarjuna shortly thereafter. Anyone know what all six are or any of them? Anyone name more than one? What is what is one of the six texts by Nagarjuna? Is it is verses from the center or one of them? Yeah, yeah. Any uh, any attempt on the Sanskrit? Oh my God! Mula Thank you, Morgan. Yeah, Mula root Madhyamaka middle way Karika verses verses on the center or verses on the fundamental mula uh, middle way view for ten thousand dollars a second text <laughs> so they don't say how many verses there are in the mula bidyamaka karika does anyone remember how many chapters there are 27 chapters and that's a hint a couple of the other texts are named by the number of verses. Uh, am I going to guess 100? <laughs> There's no 100 verse text. <laughs> oh, Jeopardy didn't work. <laughs> 60? 60, thank you, $10,000, ding, 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 the 60 verses. And then there's the 70 verses. Great names these guys come up with. OK, um, let's see shortly thereafter, and so on. There also appeared in Buddhism's classical era treatises in which the principal views of both Buddhist and non-Buddhist Indian schools were presented together in a single work and critically examined. So that's a common trend. For example, Bob, excuse me, Bhava Viveka composed his Blaze of Reasoning in the 5th century, and he goes through the, the main uh, Indian non-Buddhist schools, the Samkhyas and so forth. And in the 8th century, Shantarakshita authored his Compendium of Reality, the Tattvasamgraha, and Bhava Viveka's is the Tarkajwala. Buddhism's basic philosophy is encapsulated in what are known as the view of the four seals or axioms. All conditioned things are impermanent, all contaminated things are characterized by suffering, all phenomena are empty and devoid of selfhood, and nirvana is peace. I think it's a little, nice little explanation of these, worth uh, revisiting as the sort of uh, foundation upon which all this derives. 
Impermanence refers to the fact that things right from their birth do not remain static for even a single moment. Things, what are things? That's a, okay. This is because things do not depend on some third condition for their disintegration. The very causes that produce them also make them susceptible to disintegration. Is there any problem with that reasoning? That the causes that produce them make them susceptible to disintegration. Are the causes that produce a phenomena around when they when that other phenomena disintegrates? So how can they cause their disintegration? They make them susceptible. They built it's built in obsolescence, isn't it? Yeah, I, is it like supposed to be like a logic question? Like because they disappear, the thing that's created will disappear. I don't, I it turns out to be one of the most hotly debated topics in Buddhist oh, okay. philosophy. <laughs> or is is it how just, how causation actually works? Is how does how does a phenomenon once it's caused, why does it disappear? What causes it to disappear? If it's not consumed by fire or something, you know. Transformation. So why do we say that there's radical impermanent? You know, we say things are radically impermanent. They constantly arise and they disappear in a moment. But we, you know, how do we prove that? How do we know that? What What's the logic for that? So we'll get into that. That's that's a big topic, and there's different views on that. Believe it or not. Um. We can see this truth of impermanence for ourselves if we contemplate deeply the gross changes we observe in things. The statement that all contaminated things are characterized by suffering indicates how our existence is bound to a causal nexus of undisciplined states of mind that keeps it under their power. What does the term contaminated imply here or mean? Is it like, has COVID test positive for COVID? Doesn't it kind of relate to the same thing that it's something that is produced? That it's... It doesn't actually mean something produced. Or that it's... All contaminated. What, is, what are phenomena contaminated by? Phenomena that are of their nature of suffering. What are they contaminated by? Afflictions. The afflictions, uh, yeah, the obscurations, yeah, they're they're contaminated by contaminants. They're afflicted by afflictions. They're obstructed by obstructions of various levels. The many, the the root, the uh, root poisons, and then the fundamental flaw, which is thinking they exist at all. Thinking that we exist. Good. Okay. As for the statement, Nirvana's peace, Dharmakirti identifies this with the possibility of eliminating pollutants within the mind, from the mind, sorry. He establishes the existence of such a state of freedom through reasoning so that we do not need to rely on faith alone to explain it. Which is a big one because, you know, the fundamental premise of Buddhism that we don't often like dwell on is uh, we don't like talk about as a leap necessarily is that the Buddha was enlightened and that enlightenment is possible. 
many many practitioners don't actually believe that they they just feel like it helps and they don't really have this view of the possibility of enlightenment is enlightenment possible why do you why do we think it's possible it's similar to the impermanent one in in terms of it's not a, a given and it's not an easy topic and uh, it's a topic of great concern and Dharma Kirti writes this famous text on uh, proving the nature of uh, uh, enlightenment supposedly he establishes the existence of such a state of freedom through reasoning so that we do not need to rely on faith the teaching of no self which is usually the third mark, and he's flipped them around, relates principally to the ultimate nature of reality, namely that things do not exist the way they appear, the way they appear to us, the way they appear to exist. All Buddhist schools reject the existence of a self that is eternal, unitary, and autonomous. Yet many Buddhist schools assume that what we call self or person must nonetheless exist in some form. We find the assertion that the self exists on the basis of the aggregates, with some proposing that all five aggregates constitute the person, and others positing the mind alone to be the person. Does this, did this seem strange that Buddhists think this way? This is the Prasangika Madhyamaka view that looks at the lower, the so-called lower schools and says, well, the fact that you think that... Uh, the person is the entity that accumulates karma. Means that you affiliate the person with the skandhas. And uh, you chittamatrans, you uh, view mind as being uh, real, ultimately real. So you think that uh, that's where it all is. And in effect, you think your, your view is that uh, the self is the mind. They don't say that the self is the mind, but the, the Madhyamakans construe that as being uh, a real entity. And the, the way self is used is um, it's basically means anything that's viewed as a ultimately real um, identity or entity. So if you say the mind is ultimate, actually is the ultimate, then you're saying that the mind is the self. Uh, let's see. Some recognizing that the six types of consciousness are unstable like bubbles in water, assert eight classes of consciousness. So in that last sense, others pos positing others positing the mind alone to be the person as the chittamatrans and then we have the yogacharas some recognizing that the six types of consciousness are unstable like bubbles in water assert eight classes of consciousness and post posit rather fundamental consciousness alia vijnana to be the real person so that's that's the way galugpa prasangika's view the yogachara view of the alia vijnana as they say that yogacharas um concretize and reify the Ali of Ishnana as being a real self because it persists uh, unchanged throughout the life of a being into the next life and is the receptacle and the container.
<laughs> so, but do they say it's unchanged, Yogacara? I, I don't think so. Okay, so it's... It, it's, you know, it's the Madhyam, it's the Prasanga, because putting words in other people's mouths. It, it, you know, it's funny when they're not, when they can't speak, it's like that. Do you remember that Woody Allen movie? I think it was early on, like take the money and run. And he's in the court and he complains a lot. So the judge gags him. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the he's being interviewed and, or no, he's, he's interrogating the witness, right? He's the lawyer. And this woman like breaks into tears, like as if she can understand what he's saying. And she says, don't put words in my mouth. <laughs> anyway. it's, it's just weird because they're put on, you know, the prasangas are put on such a pedestal of being like the smartest, the best, the ultimate of the views. They're bullies. They're really just bullies. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what it seems like. It and they don't bother to read closely. They don't right. Oh, they just said that to self. They didn't, you know, where does it say that? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> oh, God, let's see. Others seen faults in identifying the person with the anger. He gets to assert a self or person that is neither identical to nor different from the aggregates. And that's the famous uh, Putgalavadans. As we can see, there is a divergence of interpretations and uh, subtleties among the various Buddhist schools with respect to the meaning of no self. The Tibetan tradition relies chiefly on interpretation of the perfection of wisdom sutras by Nagarjuna and his disciples. In this view, the meaning of no self is understood by way of dependent origination. Two types of selflessness are differentiated from the perspective of their bases, persons, and phenomena, but there is no difference in subtlety in what is negated. In both contexts, it is independent existence. And this is another difference between uh, Galupa and Prasangika and uh, Kagyu Nyingma Prasangika, is that, you know, we learn... Uh, that there's two selflessnesses and that they're different. They have an actual different basis of uh, the, uh, the aggregates. And then there's the subtle uh, propensities that remain. And it's the basis of the selflessness of, or the self of persons. And so in, in our system, we say that there's a difference um, between the Mahayana understanding of emptiness and the Hinayana understanding of emptiness, whereas the Galupas don't. The very fact that things are dependently originated establishes that they are devoid of self-existence. When we think, for example, I don't know who we are, but when we, for example, think in terms of the designator and the designated, the knower and the known, the agent and the act, and so on, we can see the utter Mutuality, <laughs> utter, utter mutuality and contingencies see, of these things. If the table in front of us, for example, were to exist objectively without depending on conceptual designation, the table itself could speak up and provide the criteria of what constitutes a table from its own side. It would say it in its own language. 
I am a table. This is not the case. We have no choice but to accept that what we call table is posited by the mind. What we see is a mutual dependence. The objective world exerts constraints on the mind, and the mind in turn exerts constraints on the objective world. Take the simple example of a handwritten letter A. So many factors converge that are part of its dependent reality. The shape of the letter, the pen that wrote it, the ink used, the paper, the person, the intention, the convention that established it as the letter, those who accept it as the letter A, and the cultural environment in which it is said seen to be meaningful, out of a meaningful usage. Within, without these, its existence as a letter is simply impossible. The nature of all things is exactly like this. Therefore, things are explained as having a nature of dependence, requiring so many other factors for their existence. <coughs> this is why Madhyamaka thinkers such as Chandrakirti speak of how things are unfindable when subjected to ultimate analysis and how their existence can only be posited as designated by the mind. This view is strikingly similar to explanations found in contemporary physics about how nothing can be found to possess reality when analyzed at the subatomic level. This was in the news recently before this, uh, and this book was written before that. Another important philosophical view in the Buddhist text is that of the two truths. We find the language of this two truths in the non-Buddhist Indian schools as well. In Buddhism, all four schools of thought equally accept the notion that there are two truths, but what constitutes them varies. Between the two Mahayana schools, there's not much difference in the way they the Chittamatra and Madhyamaka schools define the two truths. Nevertheless, there is a substantial difference in the specific examples they give. In brief, ultimate truth pertains to the ultimate nature of things, while conventional truth relates to perspectives rooted in the apparent world. Was that a helpful definition? Ultimate truths relate pertain to the ultimate nature of things. Both the Banyamakas and Chittamatra schools explain ultimate truth in terms of emptiness. Chittamatra speaks of the emptiness of external reality or the emptiness of subject-object duality. That's the Prasangika view of Chittamatra. While Madhyamaka speaks of the emptiness of real existence of everything, even the minutest particles of matter. Conventional truth encompasses the entirety of everyday reality. We perceive the natural world, the beings who inhabit it, arising and disintegration, progress and decline, cause and effect, happiness, suffering, good and bad, and so on. In short, the flower pot we see in front of us is conventional truth. While its absence of objective existence, that this pot cannot be found, but sought through ultimate analysis is its ultimate truth. So, the two truths are one entity, but conceptually, uh, two conceptual isolates. Another example of that idea of there being one entity that can have different characteristics, and those characteristics are called conceptual isolates. The pot is empty at the very moment it's perceived, and it can be perceived while simultaneously being empty. And Yomaka thinkers explain this by saying that the two truths have the same nature, but are not conceptually distinct. When the Buddhists speak of the way it's things... not there. Thank you. But are conceptually distinct as conceptually different isolates, which I just tried to explain. 
when the Buddhists speak of the way things exist, they maintain that we use that we need to transcend both extremes, that of reification and the extreme of denial and view things simply as they are, whatever that means. Generally speaking, although aspects of the Buddhist tradition that fall under religion are connected with faith, the basic framework of Buddhist religious practice is grounded in the principle of causality, which is part of the fundamental laws of nature. For example, the impulse to shun pain is part of our natural disposition and our existence as conditioned being. beings is the basis for the arising of suffering. Therefore, Buddha taught the reality of suffering as the first truth of our existence. Since suffering necessarily arises from a cause, I identified the second truth as the origin of suffering. These two truths pertain to the cause and effect of suffering. What is the cause of suffering? Its ultimate source is explained as ignorance, and since this ignorance can be brought to an end, the Buddha taught the third truth, the cessation and its origin. Since such a cessation must also have a cause, the Buddha taught the truth of the path, the means of attaining the cessation. Since thus there's a cause and effect pair of truth pertaining to the attainment of freedom. Clearly the foundation of Buddhist practice described in the Four Noble Truths is the natural law of cause and effect. When Dharmakirti introduces the truth of cessation, he demonstrates the possibility of bringing an end to ignorance, the cause of suffering. So he's going back to that point of proving that enlightenment is possible. Nowhere does he speak of the need to demonstrate the truth of cessation by relying on scriptural authority. So we don't just accept it as uh, a fact because the Buddha said so. Furthermore, Dharmakirti offers a profound explanation of suffering and its origin in terms of the sequence of the 12 links of the dependent origination, cessation on the path, in terms of the reverse order of the 12 links. Since happiness and suffering are characteristics of sentient experience, no account of them can be divorced from sentient experience. Therefore, he also offers an extensive account of cause and effect as it relates to the inner world of experience, which is what they usually refer to. Furthermore, when one speaks of Dharma, religion, and Buddhism, its true meaning must be understood in terms of the attainment of nirvana. The term Dharma refers to the means and the path that lead to nirvana, as well as the scriptures taught by the Buddha that present this path. Having distinguished three domains of subject matter and, and matter, matter in the Buddhist sources, one scientific presentations about the natural world, he calls this uh, science. Two, philosophy, which is the whole philosophy of mind and mental factors, I guess. And three, religious practice, the Four Noble Truths. And the philosophy included the four axioms and the, uh, the views of the two truths. Actually, it was just that little section before, which is about the, uh, the two truths, basically. Uh, the four axioms and the two truths he considers to be philosophy. So the external world and the internal world, the, the uh, objects and subjects are science and so forth. Um, we might ask from, from what sources the presentations in this series on the first two dimensions, science and philosophy, are developed. Among the, the uh, classics available in Tibetan, we have two canonical collections. So this is a little textual overview, and it's 915, so 
I'm going to skip this. Let's see, was there anything particularly interesting in this part? He praises the Tibetan collection of, of text scriptures as being the world's best collection. That's what I was going to say. At the <laughs> end, he says, and Tibetans got it right. <laughs> and then he says uh, what you said earlier, Chris, at the beginning of the class about this being a compendium of compendium. And he lists a whole bunch of compendiums. And he says that these uh, were our main sources. And uh, he expresses his gratitude and pride in the results. And that concludes the entire text. So he just summarized it all, so we might as well just skip. So hopefully that was a good, uh, enticing introduction, had enough like suspense and uh, hook that you'll be willing to go through the remainder of the of the whole course and read through lots of this text. We'll see. We'll see about that, right? Any comments, questions, suggestions? Jokes? Any jokes? Any good jokes? Katie, I got one for you. What did the triangle say to the circle? What? What do you say? You're pointless. Hey! <laughs> I like it. That's yeah, a very sophisticated joke, and on that basis. What did the circle say to the square? Well, no, that's already in there. <laughs> Don't be a square. <laughs> Something like that. By this marriage may I obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Great to see you, and thank you for joining in on this. I promise it will be fun, challenging, and helpful. Or your money back. <laughs> Good night.